The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined, of course, by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers, who is in Alicante right now and continues to be there. How are things going, Bethany? They're going well. My humongous bruise is healing from one of my fun days out, and now I am desperately trying to relax, and I'm putting a lot of effort into trying to relax. The irony is not lost on me. (laughs) So we've come out here for a month, and I haven't had a proper holiday since leaving peak, and this was supposed to be my time to properly decompress and gain energy and be ready to conquer the world come September. But being a doer and somebody who has to constantly validate themselves for how busy they are and how many things they check off the to-do list, I'm finding doing nothing really, really hard. It's like, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of my life. How can I just be sitting in the flat reading a book when I should be in the sea or I should be taking the kids to a museum? And so I'm trying to just not. And also, oh, so I brought two business books with me. And so I tried reading business books, but unsurprisingly, they didn't like help me relax. And then also before I was leaving, I was like, oh, I have so many things I want to do. I could be super active on my holiday. I can make videos for my community I'm making. I can make, well, I'm still doing podcasts. I can do articles. I can launch everything. Like I can just keep going. And somebody talked to me and was like, but you should really just take time off because you know, you're going to have so many amazing ideas. You're going to have spontaneous thoughts and you're going to probably be more productive than you are if you're trying not to be productive. And Brandon, how many spontaneous, amazing thoughts have I had? How, how many have you had? Zero. Zero. Right. <laughs> <laughs> how effortlessly productive have I been? Zero, right? Zero. Okay. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing is coming. And so now I'm trying like the opposite. I'm trying to just like do absolutely nothing so that spontaneous ideas and activity and energy will come to me. Okay. So by purposely trying to like draw everything down as much as you possibly can, allow yourself to be in the moment to have foster these innovative thoughts is kind of the motif. And it's not working at all because, you know, if you try and have thoughts and you try and have spontaneity, it doesn't work. And so I have now tried to give myself permission to literally do nothing. And that's my experiment for the remainder of the holiday. This is a problem for people like us, because at the end of the day, when you come off the back of working very hard for a business or whatever it is you're doing previously, you have this inbuilt urge to do stuff and to be productive. You're like, I need to be productive today. It's how we're trained, right? You wake up in the morning, I need to be productive. What am I doing? A, B, and C. And that whole mindset and grit that's associated, all that is there and you can't turn it off or it's very hard to turn it off. So I have exactly the same problem. In my experience, it usually takes me four to six weeks to properly be able to turn it off. And that requires not a holiday in this case, but some kind of career break or you're walking in the Himalayan mountains for three months to be able to get to that place. You can do it. It just takes time, but it's time that we don't often have. 
Oh, that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> three weeks in and I'm almost relaxed. <laughs> exactly. So give yourself another three weeks and you'll be there. <laughs> Just in time for September and pushing on with the new things. So we've got a fascinating topic for today, which is why licensing 170 SaaS tools is a great idea with Joe Aurelia, Senior VP of Operations at Cyware. But before we get to that, Bethany, there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about with you on this topic. So Statista was telling me that the average number of SaaS applications for organizations worldwide is 130 applications. And interestingly, that number has gone from 80 to 130 applications over the past two years, increased by 65%. So there's a lot of apps happening in a lot of companies, and it continues to grow at a pretty dynamic pace. And I've recognized that there has been an explosion of uh, SaaS buying and management platforms that are out there. And for those that haven't heard of this before, it's basically a SaaS platform to manage SaaS platforms. <laughs> so if you have a lot of SaaS applications, essentially it's meant to help you procure SaaS software, manage it effectively in terms of its renewal process, and also the provisioning of it within the organization in this case. So there's companies like Vendor, there's companies like Virtus and Cladera that do this. And the, uh, this segment, I think, is getting much more popular as it stands right now for obvious reasons. And I'm just curious, Bethany, your take on the explosion of SaaS within organizations and also these SaaS management platforms and what to make of that. I find it interesting that there's been such a massive increase in the last two years at the same time that there's been like the entire, I don't know what to call it, tech crash. So how do those two things go in with each other? <laughs> Point of reference, the 130 apps was 2022. So perhaps this is just prior to the, the downturn. To the crash. Yeah. I do know about these tools. We looked at some of them at peak for two reasons. One was to help basically have a contract management system in place, understand everything we're procuring, have almost like a sales force on the other side. So when are the renewals coming up? Be aware of of being able to give notice on time, enough time to decide whether or not you want to renew it. And then also they promise great savings by renegotiating your contracts. But when we looked at it, I looked at a couple of these platforms, the issue was it was pretty expensive and it covered your year one savings, but then it was like a three-year contract. And so it doesn't end up being net neutral and they're like promising future savings, but it didn't make a lot of sense how that was going to happen. So in the end, we opted to just build something in-house to track contracts and negotiate hard at points of renewal. From my side of things, I've worked with a company that was selling into another company that was actually using vendor in this case. And it was a fascinating experience. It's my first exposure to any of these kind of SaaS management platforms. And in that negotiation process, they did a couple of things of interest here, which is, number one, they initially sent us a whole bunch of templates in terms of the standard criteria by which the procurement was going to occur. So they were very packaged up, I would say, in terms of their process for buying our piece of software in this case. And I think what was apparent in those templates right from the outset was very difficult, onerous terms. And I remember speaking with uh, the individuals in this company in terms of negotiating back. I was saying to them, look, in their templates right now, there's two or three things that don't make any sense to me. Number one, they're asking for net 60 out of the gates and usual terms for payment terms is net 30. And given the fact that we're a SaaS scale up, that net 30 is quite important in terms of our cash flow. So we should be negotiating back on that front very clearly at the outset in terms of that set of templates. 
And the fact of the matter is, you know, we're selling into a much larger organization that is highly profitable. And there's no way that they can tell me that somehow their cash strap, thereby the net 60 is required in this case. So that's a clear point to, to go back on. The other onerous term that was sitting there was to do with their price lock for year one. And that was sitting there in the template saying that we cannot effectively increase prices in year two based on the year one lock. And the same thing, onerous terms where we clearly need to go back to them and say, look, if you want to price lock year one, then what we're doing now is negotiating a two-year contract and not a one-year contract in my view. But I think the point here is that I think with dealing with a company like Vendor, they're so packaged up to the hilt in terms of how to get the best deal for the company that they're representing in this case. And I think the last point of note is that what I also distinctly understood was that they're collating data across all the price points for all the vendors in terms of the per seat amounts. And if you're in a position where as a SaaS company, you have wildly varying price points, they're going to catch you out essentially, which is they're going to say to you, look, your average price point, which they're not going to say it like this, but essentially this is what they're doing. We've collated your price point. It's actually $25 per seat, not the 50 that you're suggesting right now. And I think with that data in the background, it's going to be a very difficult negotiation process if your pricing is kind of all over the map in terms of what you're charging recipient organizations in this case. In any event, this is my experience with vendor. How does it work with the terms? So are customers actually contracting with vendor then and vendors contracting with software companies? Yeah, yeah. This is fascinating, isn't it? The champion we were selling into, he said to us at that point, I'm going to pass you over to procurement. And who we passed this over to was vendor, <laughs> who was obviously representing them. And, you know, it was a bit weird because you're basically dealing with a separate company with a separate email address, which makes it all kind of bizarre in some ways. And with the initial onerous terms they were pushing to us, my immediate feeling was to go back to the champion, not go back to vendor because vendor is vendor. They're another company basically, and almost like negotiate the terms back to the champion in this case, because I don't want to sit there having a back and forth with vendor where they're not going to budge because they don't have to presumably. So it seems like a bit of like a bizarre process to go through. So was it their paper then rather than yours or were they modifying your contract? I think in this case, they were sending us their terms and their contract for suppliers. So it wasn't our document they were looking at, which is a good point because I suspect in negotiations going forward with a vendor type company, it's probably incredibly important to get your terms out on paper to that company first before they have a chance to kind of cut you off at the knees in terms of their, their term set. Any other thoughts on that? No, I just think it's interesting to look at companies like vendor from both being somebody using it to consolidate your spend and also somebody using it as a channel to market. And just worth understanding how it unfolds. I'd be interested to see if we had any comments on that or if anybody hears and would like to share their thoughts and experiences. I think it'd be really interesting. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a reason why people are, are using them. But I suspect when we talk to Joe, we're going to have an interesting conversation about that because trying to purchase and track 170 apps within a small organization for any company, this is challenging. So having a vendor to do it for you seems almost immediately appealing in that way. I don't know. Even if you're buying 170, I wonder how arduous it actually is. Like once you set up a good spreadsheet slash database with alerts, I think you can get it fairly under control. The other thing is to either shut down credit cards or make sure it's only very special, like specified credit cards that people can use to buy anything. We were looking at one that does a credit card that also has a really good interface on the back, which shows you all of the pieces of SaaS tech that you've bought 
or that your company has bought with the credit cards. And then you could go and negotiate it if there's any shadow IT happening. All right. So we've got an eye popper for today, which is why licensing 170 SaaS tools is a great idea. So why don't we uh, flip over to our conversation with Joe and dig into the 170 apps. I am delighted to welcome Joe Aurelia to the podcast today. Joe is an SVP of operations at Cyware, and he comes with a tremendous amount of technical background, both in terms of development and also internal IT. And today we're going to talk to Joe about the 170 SaaS tools that he has in place for a company with approximately 270 people. I just am so fascinated, Joe. The first question is, why 170? Because you've done that on purpose. Have you ever counted every single application every single team uses across the entire company, even the small ones that you think don't count? I have recently, and we didn't reach 170. I think we were at about 90, maybe? 95? It adds up. And we think about a very heavy engineering organization and a very remote first organization. You really try to automate as much as physically possible. So even if you just take the revenue operations stack by itself and you take in all the heavy hitters and the integrations and all the BDR tools, it adds up considering all your finance tools, your billing tools, your SaaS tools, your invoicing, your dunning. Every single thing is a piece. There can also be uh, significant internal tools, right? You could have internal tools that you're licensing. And if you are in a compliance-laden world, you're tracking every single tool of the ticket, you're provisioning, you're deprovisioning, you're authorizing. It adds up, unfortunately. So when you think about this standardized procurement process that makes tremendous sense for any organization, can you maybe just walk us through your best practice thinking a little bit? Because every company endures this in terms of dealing with vendors, one-off situations with different types of negotiations, non-standardized and so on. So I'm just curious around standardization, what that looks like and what you think. So let's say one of your teams says they would like a particular tooling. And they've done some research and they say, okay, you know, hey, procurement, go purchase this thing. Well, there's, there's a stop there, right? There's questions. What is your use case? Does this tool meet your use cases? Are there other tools that meet those use cases? Are there different comparative benefits? Once you pick that tool, well, let's look at that tool long-term. Does it match compliance? Does it have an ISO and a SOC? Does it have to run in a FedRAMP environment? Can you back it up? Can you restore it? If it goes down, what happens to your business? How critical is it from a continuity point of view? Is it scalable? You know, if you're buying it for 50 users and in two years you might use it for 100 users, can it even handle that? Does the tiering allow SSO integration? Can you map that to your other systems? Is there any kind of orchestration that you can use to, to automate other systems and prevent duplication amongst all of your applications so you don't have 270 applications? There's a formal process that we technically have. It goes through a number of different teams. Procurement hits it first, asks a bunch of questions, has to go through compliance to ensure that it has the appropriate controls, especially based on the kind of data that's going to be inside of it. So if we say... You know, Salesforce, all company data, right? It's got to meet certain controls. If we say something like a graphics application, you know, it's not going to be the same level of diligence, you know, associated with that. Contracts are going to have to look at it, renewals. So it's it's a number of different steps to, to get something out the door, even in a smaller company, in my opinion, if you want to track it and keep that uh, you know, nice and clean. That sounds really resource heavy for a smaller company. Do you have somebody who's particularly dedicated to it? How do you spread the load? In the earlier days when we had first started the US side, we were buying things very quickly and we were doing it with 
a small number of people. So one person was essentially doing all those steps, all those steps appropriate at that time. So the cycle time is really less because one person was just kind of talking to themselves, right? Less email, less waiting, less conversation. Now we have different teams. I can't say we have a procurement team dedicated by itself, though I, I wish we did. But you can break it up. You can break it up between your compliance team, break it up between your contracts team, you have your finance team, and you have your approvals and your expense management system. So you are able to share the load a little bit now, which is which is nice. But I don't think we're at the point yet where we need a perfectly dedicated team. It is very important to ensure that all parties know the reason for this, right? You you procure a tool and you think it's fine and you don't tell anybody, which would be, you know, shadow IT that you know no one really loves on the tech side. And, and what if you go to due diligence one day for a funding round, or you have an MA event or something like that, and they look at the tool and say, Oh, you're putting critical data in there. That doesn't pass. You know, you're you're now not going to get your SOC too. Or you're now you're not going to get your FedRAM or whatever it happens to be. There's really financial ramifications to a poor tool choice, and that's a part that we try to drive home to others. Perfect. And then maybe a bit of a different angle on this, but when you think about getting value from all the SaaS tools and making sure that whatever you've bought, you're getting full, robust functionality and and value for the organization, how do you make that happen? Because what I see in a lot of organizations is a lot of SaaS tools are licensed on a basis where marketer A likes product B, marketer B likes product C, and you end up uh, multiple licensing products over the course of time. And ultimately, people don't take responsibility for what they've actually licensed and we really don't get value from it and it becomes a bit of a mess in that sense. So I'm just curious, how do you solve that ownership question? I'd be foolish to say that we've never purchased an application. I look back and say, well, that was that was a waste of 50K. I mean, that, that does happen at times, right? We all have that memory. We try to forget it. But w- what we do is we have a, again, a sort of a, a multi-approval step even for the financing, right? So if you said you want to buy product X, that's going to go into the expense management system. There's going to be a series of people based on the dollar amount that have to actually approve that. And those people know to ask those questions. Are you going to use it? Are you not going to use it? Who's going to use it? We also look at the seat count purchased, you know, how many seats are going to be used? Do those people really need those seats? Then when a additional seat is requested, that has to be done through, you know, an ITSM system. So as a ticket, a manager's control of the tool has to authorize that additional seat to be purchased. So there's checks and balances in place to ensure it doesn't become too crazy. And then upon renewal time, and we're trying to look at each renewal the appropriate number of days out, right? Some are 30, some are 120. And understanding is, is this really in use? You know, do we need to go a second year? Are we getting the value out of it? Can we combine something? Um, we don't just renew for the sake of renewing year over year. We do actually ask that question of, is this really in use? Am I getting my money's worth out of it? Is, is the use case being solved? How do you determine that? Because people have to, one, own up to the fact that they made a mistake on what they bought, and two, that they're not actively working on it. Or maybe they like it, but they just don't like it enough. I guess it's like just a gut feeling at this age of if an application isn't pulling its weight, you can just see it's never being discussed. You don't see a lot of engagement on the platform. You don't see the output that's being expected. And you do have the honest conversation with someone, right? We're not in a, a company where we're going to allow an expensive application to just sit there unused. You know, we're going to have to ask questions. You know, where, where is the value being delivered? Is it doing what you know we expected it to do? So those, those conversations aren't, aren't too painful. There's not that many, I think, misses per se. You know, the process is decent enough that the misses are far and few between. And also oftentimes you're missold rather than having not put it in properly. Like, I don't know if that's worth talking about or if you have any answers to that of, I do feel as though over the years, not tons, but there have been moments where I've been missold or just don't think of every single feature that you need and then you buy it and then you realize that like there's one absolutely critical thing that's missing. But you wouldn't have necessarily thought about it ahead of time. Like, how do you vet that you're buying the right thing in the first place? Yeah, I love that question. I've I've definitely spoken about that before. 
I think, especially when it comes to integrations, you know, I love when they say, oh, we integrate with X or most popular, we integrate with Salesforce. That's great. Exactly what do you integrate? How much data appears in that platform? Is it, you know, on the back end? Is there a visual screen? Is there bi-directional synchronization? Can it have a single pane of glass? Can it go back and forth? You know, are you going to affect anything else? That is often really left out of the conversation. And when you're purchasing something, they kind of gloss over that a lot of times. API integrations are another one. You know, you buy a tool for an API integration, you purchase it, then you find out the specific field you want isn't in the API and they don't plan on adding it. And then it just doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have one in mind. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, you, you try your best. You can't always get it right, but you, you try to ask those questions. It's sometimes like the most obvious ones that you don't even think about. It's kind of like, do you have an on button? And you're just like, well, of course, I'm not going to include that one because of course you do. And then you realize that's the one question you didn't ask and they have no on button. Yeah, a big pet peeve for me is, you know, no disrespect to different vendors, but we are supposed to live in an age of security, right? Can we stop charging enterprise just for SSO? Let's all admit we need it. Let's just put that in every version out of the gate, make everyone happy from day one, and stop using that as a bargaining chip. That makes sense. And then actually in this kind of pet peeve category, what other pet peeves have occurred to you over time? So now that you've licensed this 170 set that you have, either in terms of negotiation with the vendor or usage of the product or the support that you're receiving. Is there any other bugbearers that kind of uh, occur to you? Yeah, you know, support's always a question. I mean, if, if it's a good SaaS product, you don't often need a lot these days. But if it is one where you need support and they're just completely no ping back, no conversation, that's upsetting, right? Especially if you can't get your data out of the tool, you can't get support, something's just broken. There's a few tools like that, and you have to find a way to, to work around it because you know it could be two or three years before they actually adjust that. That's a problem for me. You, you bought something, you know the bug has been identified, you, you tell the vendor, and it's not something that's going to be fixed for a while. It's just not critical enough. And then maybe to take a step back, and this is a bit of a broader question based on your background, but you've spent the past eight years prior to your current role being the chief information officer that you were previously. And I suspect that heavily informs your viewpoint on this subject matter, which is licensing SaaS applications, security, and so on. So I'm just curious how that chief information officer lens that you have really informs your thinking in relation to the apps that you license? Yeah, I think the primary differentiator is that when you're looking at something, you're looking at it from a viewpoint across multiple disciplines. You're looking at it from a costing viewpoint, look from a contract viewpoint. But more importantly, you're asking those harder technical questions. So typically when you're having that initial conversation with the vendor to, to purchase a product, they're not exactly expecting you to throw out the hardball on the first call, right, to ask those harder questions. So I find having that experience, you sometimes get thrown in to kind of figure out what they're hiding under the carpet, so to speak, and, and kind of understand if this is really what you want, if this is really going to work well. I remember looking at a particular product in the past, and I asked a question saying, well, where's the data go? You know, you're saying the data is so secure, what's happening? And I said, oh, the data, we're, we're throwing to AWS, we're going to do some massaging, we're going to bring it back, we're going to throw it here. I was like, okay, well, when you throw it there, like, when do you get rid of it? Oh, we haven't really figured that out yet. Okay, so you're going to take our most sensitive data, you're going to throw it in AWS, you're not going to tell me where it is exactly, you're not going to tell me how, when you're deleting it, and I'm supposed to just sit here and be warm and peachy and say this is all cool. Those kind of questions, you know, sometimes are, are beneficial. I guess I'm just going back a bit, maybe this is a question around the CIO-COO transition, is... I do not have a CIO background. I have a CRO background, so I definitely have a bias towards action and probably a certain amount of, I like process, but I don't like too much process. And going back to how you procure the steps you put in place from when you were a very small business, how do you not slow things down by putting so much 
process in place? And do you get a lot of feedback that you've put too much process in place? Got to be careful, I guess, how I answer that question. In some cases, the tools, you know, some of those 175 tools that, that you guys are laughing about on me, they help to protect oh, you. just added another process. five. 175. <laughs> five since we spoke last. <laughs> Never mind. Go back to the previous number. Because you have financial checks and balances, right? You know, you have contracts, checks and balances. You're kind of able to hang the hat on those things being required in order to meet compliance, diligence, funding. So it's not just, you know, hey, the process guy is trying to make you do all these 20 steps. It's also, hey, we'd like to get funding. We'd like to do this. We'd like to do that. So I think combining that helps to remove a little of the pressure. But, but certainly there's absolutely times where individuals want something and they, they want it right now. And when you say, hey, like they don't have an ISO or a SOC, we can't do it. And the answer back is, well, they're the only product in the world. It's a hard sell. You know, we have to look at it more seriously. What kind of data is in it? Can we, can we make an exception? Can we document it? It slows things down sometimes, but I do believe that, and again, this thought may not be, you know, operators, I think will love this thought, you know, others may not so much, but another few days now will save you weeks later, right? We all, we all know that. So we may have others experience some pain, but overall the team will be healthier in the future. Yeah. And I guess for me, it's not so much like I'm all for making sure they have their ISO and certifications, but I think it's like answering all of those questions, reviewing it, the sign-off cycles, like how many people are involved in every purchase decision? I mean, for compliance, I mean, essentially you're going to ask them to, to pull their ISO, the SOC 2 report, and you're going to look at it and you're going to look and see if there's anything in there of, of note that sniffs like something is very wrong. And in, in most cases, if a company is willing to send it to you quickly, there's a limited chance you're going to find something so horrible that you're going to say no, right? When a company starts to throw up walls, oh, you don't really need to see this, oh, it's going to take a few weeks, that's when you start to get concerned. So I think that process isn't too arduous. You know, we do have a GRC team which focuses on compliance. They would look at it. It's not a long ask once they actually receive the documents to review it. So it's not like they're taking hours. I'm thinking it's less than 30, 40 minutes, if anything, to, to review that. The, the contracts can be the most fun part, you know, depending on the type of tool and depending on what they want to do with it that's where you might get into a, a situation where you want to alter something and, and maybe you're not allowed to alter it or maybe the company doesn't want to negotiate. I've seen that a lot with tools that integrate into actual main application, right? They're very sensitive for how many users you're going to have, how many users in the future, how exactly will you use it. That's where you get into very specific contractual conversations that could take a longer time because you're, you're really trying to predict the future and document like everything, which is fun. And what about the actual evaluation of the tool? So deciding, is it the right tool and will the person who wants to buy it actually use it? The person who's going to use a tool, usually it's going to be a senior member of that specific team. So if engineering or, or finance and marketing, they're going to have some level of existing intellect and experience with that tool. So that we're going to trust that opinion to a really good extent. We're just going to ask questions to ensure that everything was considered. So if that was the only tool looked at, Maybe that's a red flag. You know, why is it the only tool looked at? Does another tool exist? Is there a cost difference? Is one better or worse? Is there scalability concerns? Usually those questions aren't too arduous, but just lets people understand that money is important. It's not like it's growing on trees. It's not like it's just, you know, tons of it sitting in the bank. We have to be judicious, you know, with our spend and, and be sure it's actually going to be a fruitful tool for the enterprise. So it sounds really arduous, but it actually isn't in terms of when you start to break it down. It's something that companies without a huge amount of resource could or lots of teams could actually implement. I'm going to say yes. I mean, we do it. We don't have a dedicated procurement team, but constantly in our head is those labels, right? You have to be compliant. You have to do this. You have to do that. So it's just kind of part of the game at that point to, to knock it all out. 
kind of a very simple question from my point of view, being a being a CEO that doesn't have a CIO background. So what's your view on the requirement for a supplier to have both ISO certification and SOC 2 certification? Because previously in my last company or company before that, we were ISO certified and we felt that was good enough for our buyers. And generally speaking, it was. But this dual certification where it's largely the same thing that you're certifying, it just happens to be like a geographically skewed uh, desire, I guess, in some ways. What's your view on that? I think if I had my way, we'd, we'd love for all applications to have both. It just makes our life nice and easy. When they don't, it's really going to come down to what kind of data is in the system, right? So if the data is not very critical, I'm going to be less concerned. If we're talking about email or Salesforce-related data or, or contract data or you know client information or government information, that's where we're going to have further questions to be sure that, that it is okay. And, it, and to be honest, you can have vendors that do have the compliance. But then if you read the fine print, it says, do not store sensitive information on a platform, our employees can read it. So, you know, yes, it's great to have the compliance, but then again, if you actually read the TNCs, there could be other smaller things that really negate all the compliance to begin with. So it's it's a challenge. Okay, so that's interesting. So then the, in your eyes, the gradient of more sensitivity around the data and the usage of the data requires, in your view, that slippery slope from certification for either ISO or SOC 2 versus both, and you're making a bit of a determination as to where that that flip-over point is in your eyes. Exactly. I mean, I think that as organizations mature and you move from a, a younger startup to an adolescent and you, you're kind of growing in age, the world expects you to have a certain level of resiliency, right? Downtime isn't really an option. So if something bad was to happen, how would you recover? Which applications do you need to run tomorrow? Or are you going to put 200 something people you know, watching Netflix all day because they can't work? Those kind of things are a part of the decision making as well for what you purchase, how you purchase it, you know, what the risks, what's the backup. It's all part of the equation. When you think about these tools that you have and you think about the question of which ones you think are highly useful for your organization cross-functionally. So let's forget about the functional ops for the time being, but from a CO lens, the ones that I'm particularly interested in are the ones that have a cross-functional impact across the company. When you look at that pot of software, uh, I guess two questions. A, what do you like in that space from an, a SaaS app uh, point of view? And second question, where does that ownership sit for the cross-functional part of it? Because obviously, if you're a functional unit in sales, and it's a very specific sales tool budgeting-wise, it makes sense for it to sit there. But that cross-functional component where perhaps your sales tool is also being used by marketing and product, this, that, and the other, that's a bit of a different ballgame in terms of ownership and budget and so on. So it's a bit of a twofold question. What is your faves, and then how do you control the cross-functional ownership? From a favorite point of view, I like things that talk to each other and they make friends and you can share data back and forth. That, that's really great. So when you have tools that have a really mature orchestration and integration with other tools, it just makes life a whole lot easier. So data can flow back and forth. So if you look at, let's say, the, the RevOps and you look at Salesforce in the center of your stack and you have you know, your outreach, your HubSpot, your ABM, all of your other BDR tools, when they can integrate all together seamlessly, you really eliminate a lot of risk in your organization, bad data. You really optimize reporting and intelligence, and you get more out of these tools that you're paying a lot of money for. So I, I love when you have heavy integrations and heavy orchestration between the tools. Also a huge fan when we're talking about all these applications is automating the provisioning and the deprovisioning of those tools, right? So if you look at 
you know, a smaller company, they have just a few applications. They're very easy to have them in, add things, remove things. But what if you need to do a scale? What if you need to have that audited? What if you need to have logs of everything you did? So looking at an ITSM tool that can combine with ticketing and orchestration between all of your platforms, work on provisioning, work on automatic SSO. Okta is an excellent example. Really can do a tremendous amount in your organization once you customize and configure it. And our team has done a, a phenomenal job with that. Task management, you know, I think that is awesome. There's many different options out there today, but it just helps you kind of organize your thoughts, uh, work with your team, determine what's important. We do so much these days at writing things down and prioritizing them and being able to see that single view of what your team is responsible for. I think that's really would be detrimental if a team doesn't have that, that kind of visibility. So I have two questions off the back of that. One is what size company would you recommend getting something like Okta in place and getting the tools that help you orchestrate things? I have an answer. I'm I'm not sure it's going to be a favorite answer. You know, I think as soon as your budget can afford it, it is an excellent thing to get because as most things in operations, the the longer you wait, the more arduous it is to make it work later on. So as you're growing and you're scaling and all these applications come in, trying to implement that after the fact, it's just going to take more time. When you get to a certain point, I, I think certainly probably at least, let's say, 75 to 100 people. Maybe that's a good number, I guess, to throw out there. You probably should have a decent you know, AR by that point. It, it really does help you to gain control and, and minimize the size of your IT team. So also think about from a numbers perspective. If you didn't have that, you're going to be hiring more people to provision and deprovision. So you're either going to pay people or you're going to pay the tool. So either way, you're going to pay something. The question is, which one lines you up you know, better in the future? Can you use your IT team at the moment to do more arduous intellectual type of work? Instead of just add Bob, he's a regular user. Add Nancy, she's an admin. So just kind of shifting the responsibility there. That makes sense. And then my second question is, coming back to your 175 now tools and budgets, and also this is something that I've just been experiencing since the world has changed in the last year, 18 months, is at point of renewal, everybody is increasing their prices considerably. How are you handling renewals? And are you starting to find that maybe you don't actually need all 175 because it's adding a lot of extra costs beyond what was budgeted originally? I'm a firm believer that when you, kind of similar to your earlier question, when you're purchasing a product, especially a very expensive product, one that you know is going to be there forever, that first contract conversation is the linchpin of success for your purchasing. So getting that price right where you know you can handle the renewal increases over time, I think is, is really key. Also, critical applications that you know will not go away, the ones that are going to be there forever. Doing multi-year purchase blocks to hedge against that is, is appropriate. So can you do a two or three-year block now? Can you stage it where you know, okay, I have uh, 100 users now, I'm going to have 150 next year, but right now I'm going to put it in place in the contract that those 150 users are going to be at a lower price. So you're kind of knowing your future budgetary expenses based on your negotiation beforehand. So in some cases, for bigger applications, we can do that, which really helps. In others, it's a conversation depending on the term. Sometimes some agreements also include we, we can't increase more than X, you know, 3X, 5X. So you try to get that in the contract as well to prevent an insurmountable increase. If your CEO came to you tomorrow and said, look, Joe, we need to cut SaaS spending by 20%. For all our listeners out there, you know, that are going through this kind of conversation with their executive team, what would be your recommendations as to how to best approach that? You know, the easiest part is looking at 
all the users you have associated with all those applications and determining if they still need to be there. So can we trim those users moving forward on the renewal? So for example, you might have been very heavy on one web commerce platform, and then over time maybe you found a free one. So can we migrate those users over? Can we cut those expenses? So by keeping user accounts down, that does tend to allow us to do that if required. But we've been pretty judicious you know, from the beginning, so it's not too much fat to trim, so to speak. If you had a hard set number, like you must remove X or you're not here or something, that's what a tough decision to be made. So what tool is really not delivering the ultimate value? Are we not getting the, the perfect response from? That would be a tougher decision. So following on to that one, I have just a question coming again with my CRO hat on a bit more than COO hat is in the RevOps space, there are so many tools and there are so many tools with almost but not quite perfect overlapping capabilities. And so you end up with like your SDR leader who wants to have, I don't know, one outreach or sales loft, but yet like Salesforce kind of also wants to use Salesforce, but it's not fit for purpose. And then Gong is moving into the SDR unit. Yeah, like, do you handle all of these best of breeds or do you choose one that you're just backing is going to be good enough for some of the adjacent performances and hope they'll either develop it or buy somebody to plug the gaps? But the consolidation has not happened. For 15 years, I've been waiting for consolidation, and it's just nowhere to be seen, and I don't understand. It's a lot of questions there. Fix them all for me, Joe, please. I mean, so I also, one of my other teams in this company was also revenue operations, so I do have all that responsibility as well. We do try to not have duplicates. You know, where we will have duplicates is maybe sometimes there are certain contact search applications that have cultural preferences. So, you know, maybe you have... One application is really good in the US, but there's no data for EMEA. So you have to have two. So you have a little bit of an overlap there. In general, though, we keep a really tight ship on what touches Salesforce. I, I kind of treat Salesforce as someone standing in front of it with, with a bat, a nice bat, but they really try to protect the data. Because for me, if the data gets dirty, your reports are useless. So we really want to try to, to protect the system, protect the output. And that means not acquiring applications that would be uh, double entry or, or not needed. So yeah, we've certainly had applications where folks maybe want a duplicate, but they've pretty much been been no. And a lot of the SDR applications also have your big ones, you know, your HubSpot, your Outreach. They're, they're usually very small as well, so they're not really touching as much. It might be some quick automated mail sender or maybe some some contact lookup tool. They're not usually the heavy hitters in terms of cost. It's not just the cost. It's kind of like I'm loath to pay for the same thing twice, even if one is like incrementally slightly better than the other. Should I just get out of my way and handle? paying an extra 5K just because it's slightly better than the one that is bundled in with outreach in the first place? I think certainly, like if you look at some Salesforce outreach HubSpot things, there, there are ways to do things in those toolings. But sometimes they may not be as mature as needed unless you had a higher version of that platform, right? So that, that could be a concern. So you, you know the tooling has it. It doesn't do a phenomenal job. And to do a phenomenal job, you'd have to buy 10 or 20K more to get there. So in those cases, I could see a double tool if the overall cost was less and fixating yourself to a higher version of the primary platform. You just got me on to, I guess, my own pet peeve slightly, which is a lot of companies end up in this situation where they have dirty data 
they try to avoid it, they do X, Y, and Z, but you end up with polluted data where you just don't have the right stuff and your data integrity in Salesforce, as an example, is compromised for all sorts of reasons that are very complicated. So I'm just wondering from a CO perspective, you know, and with your tremendous background being a CIO previously, what is it that as a CEO I should be thinking about to ensure that we don't get into that scenario in the first place? Because obviously I'm not the RevOps owner, typically being a CEO, and RevOps is, you know, a profession unto itself. But from a CEO lens, what is it that I should be thinking about to ensure that we prevent that scenario? Yeah, if you don't have ownership over the RevOps stack, I think it's important to disseminate the reasoning behind your requests so the teams can try to implement that as, as best as possible. So typically we see most individuals will look at Salesforce and say, oh, it's so easy, it's WYSIWYG. We add this field, we add that, change this page layout. Oh, this one cell is special. It's it's really big, so just do that. And I can put it this way. we I have a, a very strong Salesforce past and I am a bit of a Salesforce fan, so people have figured that out already. I've had people I hired into this company to do work. And then they get here and they're like, yeah, this thing is clean. I like this. They look at the data and they can realize that it's not dirty, it's mature, and they can kind of add on to that in a nice way. But to Brandon's question, to educate the teams, is you have to definitely, I think, ensure whether you own it or not that the very few, hopefully, individuals with admin permission to those key platforms are very well trained on the diligence of data stewardship, that they understand intimately the ramifications of quick yeses. And they're really sort of ensuring that the life of the platform is more critical than that immediate request. That's some good advice because typically what ends up happening, as you probably know, is that sales need certain data and they need an ASAP for campaign A or whatever it is that the SDRs are doing in that case, or the CEO is freaking out about the pipeline and they have a request for data. So the RevOps professional ends up hacking their way through whatever to get an answer as fast as possible in doing so, leaving open this kind of integrity question. I think this orientation around the most important thing that you can think about is making sure that integrity is always retained and that the immediate request falls secondary to that is maybe just a good fundamental way of thinking about it. I think I want to also tie that in. You know, you mentioned before, you asked me, you know, what are your favorite tools? So let's say you are using a task management platform. We'll just say Asana for argument's sake. Everyone loves a beautiful unicorn that pops up. You know, sales comes to you, it's a Friday afternoon, it's almost end of day, and you're forced to do it. You make the change, you have no option to say no, but you make a task for your team and you say, I got to fix this thing later. This is a problem. You know, we have to clean it up. And you figure out a way when time allows and no one's looking to make the system better. So if you are very diligent as a team to track your sins for argument's sake and repent for them later, you can get around that. So you, you've made your team happy. You're a collaborative team. You've made the business, you know, do their thing. But at the end of the day, you didn't sacrifice the integrity of your system. And honestly, no one else is really going to ask you or care anyway. So at the end of the day, you know that you protected the system and that it's better. So the next time your team can answer questions in a, in a solid fashion. We are rapidly running out of time. But before I ask a final question, you said that you answered Brandon's question, which is what are your favorite tools, but you didn't actually. Brandon's question was what tools to use and how to handle cross-functional processes. So I am going to ask the question, what are your favorite tools? What can't you live with out of your 175? I'm going to add one that we don't use here, but I use personally. I think it's phenomenal. So there's a tool called Reclaim.ai, and it's basically using artificial intelligence to essentially play Tetris with your calendar for you. So you can tell it, I want to do these 10 things this week. I don't care when I do it, just make it happen. And it will block out your calendar for you automatically. But as people 
populate your calendar with events, it will automatically move your focus time for the events that you need to do. So essentially, instead of you going every day and kind of moving things around, it's automating that for you, which saves a tremendous amount of time. So that's one plug there. I think that tool saves people a ton of time. You know, internally, I'm going to go to Salesforce. I think that's phenomenal to move things around as a center of, you know, RevOps universe. Okta is super popular for me because we integrate it with so many things that we now ask it questions. We ask it for reports that we can use to answer diligence or compliance or, you know, team conversations. And that's where that orchestration piece comes to as well. You know, really being able to pull the data from all of these systems and output a report at the end of the day shows your team is moving, I think, to, to a higher level of maturity. Other populars besides those, I mean, I think we don't own the engineering stack here, but anything I think that we can purchase to improve the software development lifecycle, to automate security checks, to automate consistency, I think is, is very key. Anything that takes out risk from the equation is going to be very important. So maybe you have a RFP tool to automate responses for clients. Maybe you have a compliance tool to automate evidence collection. These things help to capture data and keep it in one place. And I think as a company grows, especially globally, where data is and what data is the utmost correct data becomes a, a very important key. And lastly, I'll, I'll do a plug for any kind of contract lifecycle management tool. I think a lot of organizations just sign contracts, they call it a day, they shove it in drive somewhere. But can you really extract all the metadata from those agreements? Can you understand how to ask reports of all of the agreements in your company? I think if a company was to focus on adding that into their mix, they could answer even more questions for the business and become even more integral to future decisions. Do you have one that you would suggest over any of the others? We're using a tool at the moment called Kanga. It captures all the data, integrates with DocuSign, which again, integration, you know, very key. So you can have that seamless throughput, allows you to capture metadata and reports. There's also a ton of different other ones as well, but it is very useful. And if someone was to take that away from me, it would be a problem. And see, that's a perfect example of two tools. So you're using DocuSign and Conga, but not CongaSign. Anyhow, that's just me and my overlapping technologies. I'll be more than happy to answer. So we started using CongaSign, but because, Cong- no offense, Please, the international community is not aware of Congo sign. People are refusing our emails. They thought they were spam. So we couldn't get our contract signed. So Joe, if anybody wants to follow you, learn more about what you have to offer in your experiences, how best can they find you? Uh, I think LinkedIn would be the best. Joe Aurelia Jr. And uh, you'll find me uh, up there on the system. Perfect. And we'll include links to your LinkedIn as well in the speaker notes. And then the final question, which is we've spoken about tons. If our guests could only remember one thing from the conversation, what's the one takeaway they should have? The single mantra takeaway is planning the future operational strategy of your team. So what do you need to do today to be successful tomorrow? even if sometimes it might be a little painful, and trying to understand where you're trying to go and working collaboratively with the other teams to make that potential future vision a reality. Perfect. Well said, Joe, and thank you for joining us on The Operations Room. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment, and we will see you next week. Thanks very much. 